What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Seattle, Washington, November 5th, 2003. In front of a packed room at the King County Superior Court, 54-year-old Gary Ridgway pleaded guilty to 48 counts of aggravated murder. Gary Ridgway is probably the most prolific serial killer in America, if not, if not the world. He was a killing machine, a man of extraordinary evil. After another body was found years later, the death toll hit 49. He's preying on sex workers or young women who have run away from home, people who are vulnerable. He disposes of their bodies in the Green River. The victims he preyed upon were young girls who had run away from home and young sex workers in the area. She was a little girl when she was murdered by him. She deserved the best of everything. She deserved to have a very happy life. Despite police suspicions, it took nearly 20 painstaking years to gather enough evidence to convict Ridgway. I poked him with my finger in his chest. I says, you SOB, I know you did it, and we're going to get you. The man who became known as the Green River Killer murdered 49 young women and was suspected of killing many more. This is what makes a killer a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Seattle, Washington, 1982. It was in the Pacific Northwest that one of the most prolific serial killers of all time, Gary Ridgway, preyed upon vulnerable young women, runaways, and sex workers. Gary Ridgway gets a special place in the role of serial killers because we're talking about a man who's responsible clearly for killing at least 49 women. After he's murdered his victims, he disposes of their bodies in the Green River. Victims' bodies are found in the river, they're found weighted down. And he hasn't just raped and killed these women, he has extended his power and control over them. So some are found with objects inserted inside them, stones, essentially. This was a killing machine operating in plain sight. What could be more horrifying? If you walked out into the street and said, good morning, Gary, you would not say for one second that Ridgway was a serial killer. Elaine Porterfield was a young reporter with the Seattle Post Intelligencer at the time. Viewed as largely unremarkable and almost kind of uninteresting, maybe a little bit odd, Gary was a truck painter for a famous truck building company here in Seattle. With his unassuming persona, Ridgway was able to commit serial murder for two decades and get away with it. The fear that swept across the Pacific Northwest was palpable. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley describes the terror that gripped the local community. 
I think that this case really did have a significant impact on the community. There'd been this serial killer on the loose for, for many, many years who was named the Green River Killer. And this person didn't have an identity. He was this faceless monster. Every time a body was found, it was thought that it could be attributed to the Green River Killer. And that included some cases in Oregon and all the way up to British Columbia. And it was terrifying to women going out by themselves. Virginia Graham's sister, Deborah Estes, was one of Ridgeway's victims. You know, we're both small. She's uh, was about, you know, my same height. You know, she loved the color purple. That was her favorite color. And she absolutely adored horses. She loved horses. Deborah disappeared in September 1982. You cannot begin to, unless you've lived that, you can't begin to understand the specific hell on earth that that really is. Candace Diskin's younger sister went missing in 1987. My sister's name was Roberta Joseph Hayes. Bobby Joe, that was her nickname. I think of her often. I don't know, she just had a big, beautiful smile and big blue eyes, and she was, she was a funny kid. Bobby Joe's body wasn't found for four years. All the while, Candace suspected the worst, that her sister had been murdered by the Green River Killer. It was a really tough time not knowing where so many people's loved ones, their daughters, their, you know, where they were, what was happening to them. Sergeant Frank Atchley and his partner Bob Lamoria served jointly as supervisors on the Green River Task Force. They worked tirelessly with their fellow detectives to track down the man who was arguably the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Uh, we were finding victims uh, two or three times a week during certain periods of time during the investigation. We had victims that were missing for over two years that had never been reported missing. So it made it easy for Mr. Ridgeway to get away with it as long as he did because we, it, we were sometimes two and three years behind him. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel and forensic psychologist Rex Bieber talk about Ridgway's upbringing. The middle of three sons to a ferocious domineering mother and a bus driver father. His parents argued relentlessly, but he always took his mother's side. The mother was to become the most signal figure in his life. The other thing about his mother is this. Up till roughly age 13, he, he had a bedwetting problem, and his mother would deal with his problem by personally washing his genitalia. This kind of behavior is very unusual. It is going to inevitably lead to a confusion about sexuality. And indeed, Ridgway admitted to his psychiatrist that he had lustful sexual feelings towards his mother. As a teenager, he was obsessed with sex. By the time he reaches adolescence, Ridgway has got what could only be described as a supercharged sex drive. He wants sex all the time, everywhere, regardless. Ridgway also struggled academically and was held back two grades. There's also problems with his peers. He's always the slow one. He's always a bit behind. So always being the odd one out, not having that sense of belonging. And one of the things that Gary Ridgway learned to protect himself was to be violent, was to instill fear in other people, because that was a kind of armor. When he was 16, 
Ridgeway viciously attacked a six-year-old boy. It actually stabs the boy seriously in the liver, and the, ch the child survives. This episode hints that there is some completely psychotic, disorganized process going on just below the surface with him. The boy didn't identify him, and Ridgeway was never charged with the assault. In 1969, he joined the U.S. Navy, and the following year, Ridgeway married his first wife. His mother was ever-present in their relationship. This is a woman who was so dominating that even after he got married, his mother would decide what clothes to buy him and that he should wear. Soon after getting married, Ridgeway was deployed on a tour with the U.S. Navy. Unable to contain his sexual urges, he regularly visited sex workers. Wherever he was, he visited sex workers. And in several cases, he contracted venereal diseases, which he was angry about, and which he held against the sex workers. And I think that just fed on itself, that anger, that hatred, that depersonalization of these women. Are you a small business owner like me? I own my own business. My business is me and my face parts and the voice that comes out of those parts, which is cool because I can take time off whenever I want, but my boss is kind of a biatch and she gets pretty irritated if she has to stand in line at the post office. Enter stamps.com, which makes mailing and shipping quick, easy, and cost-effective. For more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses. Stamps.com gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services you need right from your computer. Plus, you get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 30% off USPS rates and 86% off UPS. Streamline your shipping process with Stamps.com's easy-to-use software. You just need a regular computer and printer, no special supplies. You're up and running in minutes, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And Stamps.com works easily with Shopify, Amazon, Etsy, eBay, and more. Stop wasting time and start saving money when you use Stamps.com to mail and ship. Sign up with promo code WHAT for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code WHAT. When Ridgeway returned from duty, he found his wife had been dating another man. The couple divorced in January 1972, and the next year, he found a new wife. During this time, Ridgeway also found a new outlet for his passions. Ridgeway suddenly became something of a religious zealot, a Bible thumper. He would proselytize. It's kind of fervent, almost out of proportion, his uh, interest in religion. Religion plays a very interesting role for some subset of serial killers. The problem is that religion, psychology, medications, none of them have proven more powerful than the, the urge to kill in a serial killer. Ridgeway and his second wife had a son. On the surface, they seemed like an ordinary, all-American family. Part of him was still a sex maniac. Another part of him was very guilty about that. So you have what you might describe as the Jekyll and Hyde character. Ridgeway visited sex workers at night. 
Meanwhile, his mother was constantly hovering over his relationship with his wife. It became too much, and his second marriage ended in divorce in 1981. Soon after, he had his first run-in with the law. He was arrested for solicitation. It was a minor charge, but who could foresee that it would lead to him preying upon dozens of vulnerable women and committing monstrous murders? Driven by his insatiable sex drive, Ridgway started to pick up sex workers from the SeaTac Strip, a road that connects Seattle to its neighboring city of Tacoma. This is a, a highway that was frequented by, by sex workers at the time. Ridgway's first victim was just 16 years old. One night after work, he picked the sex worker up from the strip. Here's Sergeant Frank Ashley, who supervised the task force. These women were in the area of Pacific Highway South, and that's where he would make contact with them and abduct them. And usually these were after hours, during the hours of darkness. How he would get them into his car uh, is anybody's guess. Ridgway took his first victim to a desolate location along the banks of the Green River, just outside Seattle's city limits, where he killed her. The body of the 16-year-old was found on July 15, 1982. Detectives determined that she had been murdered about a week prior to her discovery. Sergeant Bob Lamoria supervised the search at the first crime scene. The first victim apparently floated down the river and got tangled up in some brush and the rocks, and her body was exposed in, in plain view. Her kidnapping and killing would be the start of a sinister pattern that would result in 49 confirmed murders. Ridgway typically targeted young women drawn to the peace and promise of America's Pacific Northwest. He's preying on vulnerable women, so women who are either sex workers or young women who have run away from home. They were young women doing the best they could in the way they knew how. They were 15, 16, 17 years old, 20 years old. After his first murder, Ridgway went on a frenzied killing spree. In just five weeks, he picked up five more women along the SeaTac Strip. By August 15, 1982, Ridgway had abducted, raped, and callously killed all of them. He dumped one of the bodies near a creek and the remaining four in the Green River. The defiled bodies were found in clusters along the banks. The uh, homicides started in, uh, you know, uh, 1982, and the publicity that was being received or broadcasted by the news media, every member of this county, the, the state of Washington, the United States, were aware of these murders. In August of 1982, a task force was formed to catch the so-called Green River Killer. The team scoured the area and made a series of grim discoveries. This was the site of three of the victims there were two upstream aways pushed into the water and weighted down with rocks. A third one was left on the bank in the tall grass. I assume that he thought he was going to get caught. He saw somebody and dumped the body and ran because she didn't make it in the water. When the call came out, we would have dispatched the task force. We'd set up a perimeter. We'd line up and we would clip every blade of grass looking for any hairs, fibers, or anything else that might be of investigative value. 
Analyzing the bodies, detectives quickly determined a pattern in the killer's behavior. He would head to the SeaTac strip after work. There, he would pick up a sex worker from the side of the road. His method of operation, his MO, was taking these women to wooded, isolated areas, sometimes along riverbanks, uh, along stretches of road, so that uh, he would see any approaching vehicles and give him uh, plenty of time to avoid uh, being uh, seen. Ridgeway would park and persuade the women to get out of his truck. Then he would attack. Each victim was manually strangulated. And uh, the fact that he admitted to the pleasure he sought out of watching the, the life seep out of each of the bodies, I feel that that is horrific. What's more, Ridgeway's victims never saw it coming. Ridgeway strangled many of his victims from behind. It gives him, first of all, the element of surprise. It reduces the likelihood they can effectively fight back against him. In those few seconds before his victims became unconscious, they would be shocked, they would be struggling to breathe, they would be in pain, they may be trying to fight back. In about 10 seconds, somebody will be unconscious and unable to respond to you. He started off strangling with his hands, but increasingly they put up a fight. It bruised his arms and he didn't want to have to explain that to his friends or to his son. And so he started using ligatures because it meant he didn't have to put his hands on their throat. By the end of the summer of 1982, Ridgway had kidnapped, raped, and murdered nine young women. He would pick up sex workers and, and murder them and then dispose of their bodies in clusters. So there would be dump sites where there were several bodies of his victims. The next group that we found was on the Star Lake Road. He would park on a curve so that he could see in both directions, and then he would carry the bodies out and deposit them. Ridgway later confessed to having sex with the bodies after death. In some cases, long after. The necrophilia, having sex with a, a, a dead person, is extraordinarily rare. And it's one of the pieces of the puzzle that suggests uh, true psychosis. To engage in necrophilia, you have to be completely out of touch with reality. Ridgway would often revisit the bodies of his victims multiple times. Um, he would move them, he would have sexual relations with the bodies. It's, it's absolutely ghastly. One of the many runaways that Ridgway targeted was Deborah Estes. Her older sister, Virginia Graham, was 16 when Deborah disappeared in the summer of 1982. We were so close in age, but she had shorter blonde hair. Like many who take to the streets, Deborah ran away from an abusive family situation. In Deborah's case, her father was the alleged abuser. You're literally living with a rattlesnake. That rattlesnake can be calm one second and can just Absolutely, if you are not hypervigilant around watching and you drop your guard for just one minute, um, you can seriously get hurt or even die. One fateful night in July 1982, home life became too much to bear for 14-year-old Deborah. Probably two, three o'clock maybe, somewhere around there, my mom woke up and noticed that 
my stepdad, Debbie's biological father, was coming out of my sister's bedroom. And my mom asked him, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm just checking on her like any good father would do. And no, he wasn't. He was there for a totally different reason. And she left the next day, early, very early. For Virginia, it's a moment that still haunts her. I would have grabbed her and I would have held on to her. And I don't know, I don't know what we could have done because she was 14 years old. Deborah's mother reported her missing to the Seattle police. On September 20th, Deborah was brought to the police station. She'd reported that she'd been raped by a client a week earlier and was there to see photos of the suspect. It turned out that the man who attacked Deborah was another active serial rapist in the area. After talking with law enforcement, a detective dropped Deborah off at a motel where she was living. Deborah was never seen again. Well, the same day that she got dropped off by the detective investigating the serial rape cases uh, was the same day that Gary Ridgway picked her up. Deborah's desecrated body was found nearly six years later. She had been dumped in the debris of a building site right down the road from where she had been abducted. From where he picked her up to where he took her to kill her, she maybe would have lived no more than an, an hour, hour and a half at the most from the time he picked her up. By the time, you know, they drove and everything took place and he buried her no more than an hour and a half. So, um, boy, that's a sobering thought. By the end of 1982, the death toll wrought by the Green River Killer had reached 11. By dumping bodies in the river and in the woods, Ridgeway had made hard evidence difficult to come by. If a body is disposed in water, then quite clearly a few things will happen. Evidence can be washed away, trace evidence, DNA. Bloodstains and blood patterns will be washed away, so it reduces the forensic opportunities. If the body is there for a long time, decomposition will hamper the examination. Despite finding many bodies that summer, the Seattle-based task force had no idea who the perpetrator might be. Or a suspect pool was basically every male over 17 or 18 years old in the entire world. And we didn't know whether it was coming from someplace else, flying in or driving in or what. Fear spread across the Pacific Northwest. A truck painter by day and a serial killer by night, 33-year-old Gary Ridgway was hiding in plain sight and living in a quiet Seattle neighborhood. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley say nobody would have ever suspected Ridgway. He just seemed so normal. The police in the area were struggling because who would suspect Gary Ridgway's inoffensive, talkative, plain, ordinary-looking man? There was no horn, there were no tails. He wasn't wearing a, a great black cloak. Uh, Gary Ridgway was the man next door. You would not have noticed him. 
he's your, your average Joe. He's, he's somebody who fits in. He, he's somebody who, who you, you wouldn't be scared of because he doesn't look like a monster. But this average Joe was zeroing in on young, defenseless runaways who worked the streets near the SeaTac airport. He knows that he's got an easy target group here, so that's going to allow him to get away with it for an awfully long time. I don't think any of them would have believed that somebody who looked as inoffensive and as Joe average as Gary Ridgway would be capable of murder. After what appeared to be a lull over the winter with no new bodies found, in the spring of 1983, Seattle's serial killer struck again. On the evening of April 30th, Ridgeway drove to the SeaTac Strip where he picked up 18-year-old Marie. Like so many of his victims, she sold sex to survive. She also had a boyfriend who acted as her pimp. When he saw her get in Ridgeway's truck, his gut told him something wasn't right, so he decided to follow them. Sergeant Frank Atchley shares more. The boyfriend saw her get into the car and he was trying to go to her rescue with uh, he couldn't because he got stopped at a, a, an electrical signal light. When she didn't return a few days later, Marie's anxious boyfriend and her father desperately searched the area. The boyfriend and the, and the girl's father drove around the areas trying to find it, and they were worried about the girl because they were also aware of the uh, Green River murders. The two men made a remarkable discovery. While patrolling or, or while driving around checking the areas for their, their girlfriend and daughter, they found this truck that matched the description that the boyfriend had seen, and it turned out to be Gary Ridgway's. Ridgway's distinctive truck sat in the driveway as a detective questioned the 34-year-old truck painter at his house. But with Marine nowhere to be seen, the officer didn't pursue the lead. Marie's badly decomposed body wouldn't be found until 20 years later. However, Ridgway remained on the police's radar after her disappearance. Ridgway had slipped away, but just a few days after being questioned by police on May 3, 1983, he killed again. But this time, he radically changed his M.O. He attacked 21-year-old Carol Ann, a local waitress and a single mother. Carol Ann was somebody who, who wasn't a sex worker. Um, she was somebody who knew uh, Gary Ridgway and that the two of them had, had had sex. And afterwards, Gary Ridgway had strangled her. But it wasn't enough for him to just kill her. He engaged in some rather bizarre behavior with Carol Ann's body. So he put a, a grocery bag over her head. Um, he left two gutted fish on her body. He, he draped a, a, an empty bottle of wine over her torso. And he'd left ground up sausage meat on her hands. Carol Ann's body was found some 20 miles east of the SeaTac Strip in Maple Valley, Washington. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber was shocked by what Ridgway did next. This woman was different than the other victims. It was maybe the only time or the first time that he killed a non-prostitute. And what do we know about Ridgway's response to doing this? He did something that I've almost never heard of in a serial killer. He laid besides the body and he cried. And crying is something serial killers don't do. 
And what I would like to suggest this tells us, what it teaches us, is that even the devil himself has a moment where he sees clearly enough what depravity and evil wreaks in his soul to be touched humanly. By the end of the year, the violated bodies of 24 women had been found by stunned passers-by. Many more had been reported missing, and the suspicion was that they too were victims of the Green River Killer. Body parts were scattered all over the Pacific Northwest. He's been dumping bodies up, up and down the Green River, taking some of them to the neighboring state of Oregon. The Green River Task Force spent countless hours and days carefully gathering all the fragments of evidence they could from across the area. The task force investigators were spending a lot of time on bone finds. We would launch the whole entire task force and spend a lot of investigative time only to find out at the end that it was an animal bone. All the while, young women continued to die. By the end of 1984, there were 42 victims, and police were nowhere near stopping the Green River Killer. Believe me, all of the investigators wanted so much to solve this case and prevent somebody else from being killed. Frank Atchley had been brought in to supervise the Green River Task Force in May of 1984, hoping to finally solve the case. These detectives, each and every one of them, put their heart and soul into solving this investigation. For each victim that was found, it impacted the morale of the detectives who were hoping that there would be no more victims of the Green River Killer. The next year, Ridgway met the woman who would become his third wife at a Parents Without Partners meeting. They seem to have quite an idyllic relationship. She thinks very highly of him. He's somebody who is a, a kind of pillar of the community. His third wife provided quite a lot of assistance to Gary in terms of looking after his finances and that kind of thing. So things that he wasn't particularly capable of doing himself. At the same time, the killings seemed to slow down. His third wife was later to say, I think I saved many lives because I loved him. It's a most poignant remark, and one that strikes to the heart. You embrace a serial killer, and you save lives. I don't think for a moment she thought he was a serial killer when she married him, but my goodness, I find it heartbreaking. But Ridgway couldn't suppress his urges for long. The man who had now killed 46 women picked up 21-year-old Bobby Joe Hayes in February 1987. Her sister Candace remembers that time well. In 1991, her remains were found. So four years after she went missing, her remains were found um, on Highway 410 outside of Seattle in Auburn. So that was, that was terrible for the family, as you can imagine. Like so many of the young women that Ridgway kidnapped and killed, Bobby Joe was a sex worker. A single mother of five, she was known to frequent the SeaTac Strip, Ridgeway's preferred hunting grounds. Bobby Joe also worked the streets of Portland, two and a half hours south of Seattle. I would see her, you know, downtown. I would see her on Aurora Avenue, near where we grew up. Though they shared the same mother, 
Candace's sister, Bobby Jo, lived with her father and his new wife. She wasn't treated very well. There was a lot of drinking involved. So she pretty much ventured out on her own at about age 12, hit the streets. You know, I would see her with her Johns. I would see, and, and you know, my heart just broke. She deserved the best of everything. She deserved to have a very happy life. Um, and then I'm sorry for not being able to help her more. That's probably all. When Bobby Joe's remains were finally found, it ended years of torment for Candace and her family. Not knowing can be just as hard as knowing. It's bittersweet. Nothing good about it, but I no longer have to drive Aurora Avenue looking for my sister because that's what I did for years. I'd be driving in and I was just constantly aware of myself looking for her, um, hoping to see her with a John, you know, or in somebody's car or something. By the spring of 1987, the death toll was up to 47. When some green carpet fibers were found among the remains of several victims, a warrant was issued to search the home and workplace of Gary Ridgway, who was already known to police. The fibers, as it turned out, showed that some of the victims had been in the same environment before or after they were killed. A young couple had been renting rooms above Ridgeway's garage and was able to help out with this line of inquiry. They showed us photographs that they had taken inside the house that showed that it had a green drivable type carpet in there. Frank Ashley and a team of detectives entered Ridgeway's home. I saw Ridgeway <laughs> at the house. He was smug and his mother was there and she was screaming and hollering that, that we had the wrong guy and so on and so forth. That's when I poked him with my finger in his chest. I says, you SOB, I know you did it, and we're going to get you one of these days. Unfortunately, that day was not the day. We found no remnant or anything of that carpet. It had all been removed, replaced. And uh, even the vacuum cleaner didn't reveal anything that helped us. He had really cleaned up the place. Detectives also searched Ridgeway's job site in Renton, Washington. It was uh, 87. We served search warrants on his place of employment. When we got him back to the precinct, they took a, a swab of his, had him chew on a piece of gauze, which was ultimately his coup de grace. It would take 14 years and a breakthrough in technology before the saliva-soaked gauze revealed the true identity of the Green River Killer. Perhaps the events of the last week or two are leaving you feeling anxious or depressed or enraged. If you find that you're having trouble coping, there is help right at your fingertips. From Cerebral, it's an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription meds online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door so you can skip the pharmacy. With the Cerebral mobile app, it's like having your personal care team wherever you are. You can message your care team and access self-care resources wherever you are. Connect with your counselor and therapist on your own schedule through your laptop or the Cerebral mobile app. There are affordable treatments that are one-third the price of traditional therapy, and treatment options are available with or without insurance. 
And for listeners of What Makes a Killer, you can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com slash what. Go to Cerebral.com slash what for 65% off your first month. That's just a total of 30 bucks to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. Since 1982, the Green River Killer had taken at least 48 young lives with impunity. But in 2001, groundbreaking advances in forensic technology finally closed in on the average man next door, 52-year-old Gary Ridgway. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel finds Ridgway comparable to other infamous killers. Arguably the most prolific serial killer the United States has ever seen, outranking even Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer. He looks inoffensive, but is in fact dreadful, a man of extraordinary evil. At the Washington State Crime Labs, Dr. Beverly Himmick took advantage of a new technique in forensic technology. It takes a breakthrough in DNA technology to finally trap Gary Ridgway, a man who's been getting away with murder for close to 20 years. The detectives re-examined the saliva that was collected 14 years earlier. Green River Task Force Sergeant Frank Atchley remembers more. When we started the investigation, DNA was just coming on the scene in the United States. And the fi thing that we finally got Ridgeway on, the DNA, had been submitted uh, two, three, four times previous for processing, but it kept coming back inconclusive. It wasn't until 2001 we got a positive hit on him. As they were gathering evidence in the fall of 2001, Gary Ridgeway suddenly reemerged. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley doesn't believe Ridgway stopped killing to better himself or to hide. He was soon back to his old tricks. Whilst Gary Ridgway might have stopped killing for a period of time, he has not completely turned around his behavior or his lifestyle. In 2001, he is picked up by a police officer as he is soliciting a sex worker. He makes the mistake of picking up an undercover police officer whom he mistakes for a prostitute, and that led to his arrest. Alerted to the incident and concerned that he might kill again, law enforcement decided to act. On November 30th, 2001, they arrested Gary Ridgway. Elaine Porterfield was a reporter with the Seattle Post-Intelligencer at the time. It was unbelievable. I think at that point, people didn't believe that he would ever be caught was absolutely stunning and gratifying. There was a giant collective sense of relief that a monster was off the street. The Green River Killer was suspected of killing at least 48 women. The problem was that with the evidence they had, the police could only charge Ridgeway with four murders. However, that was enough to warrant a death penalty. For the prosecution, it was a bargaining chip. Gary Ridgeway's attorney contacted the prosecutor and agreed to waive the death penalty in exchange for a complete confession on all the women that he killed in the King County jurisdiction. A deal was made so the affected families could find out what happened to their loved ones. In 2003, 
Gary Ridgway confessed to the dozens of murders he had committed. The investigators then contacted the families of the deceased. Candace Diskin's sister was one of Ridgway's victims. That was a day, you know what PTSD is? <laughs> That's a day that I can feel the emotion because I was at work. And the phone rang and my heart started beating. And they said, you know, we have this person in custody. He has um, confessed to the murders of so many women. I honestly, I thought I was going to faint. It was shocking. I never thought in a million years that I would be getting a phone call like that. On November 5th, 2003, Ridgway appeared in front of a packed King County courthouse in downtown Seattle and made his plea. The first time I saw him, it, it was disappointing. He was kind of a mouse of a man in the minds of so many in the Pacific Northwest as some sort of superhuman. And it was just shocking to see what a little worm of a man he actually was. He tried to apologize at one point, but the father of one of the victims interrupted him with sort of a torrent of emotion. And Ridgway was unable to speak. The father obviously just had to address him. Eventually, you know, he was gaveled to order by the judge, but it was a very intense moment. The only time Gary Ridgway was affected by any words that anyone spoke were when he was forgiven. <laughs> Interestingly enough, that made me more angry um, when I saw that. It's like, I just poured my heart out to you, what you've done to our family by taking my sister and nothing. He had no facial expression whatsoever. I didn't get it. The first time that they sentenced Gary Ridgway in, in, in 2003, I couldn't cry. I was dumb. There just was nothing there. Virginia Graham went to the court to try to understand why Ridgway had killed her sister Deborah 20 years earlier. I don't know how another human being could do to somebody else what he put these girls through. In the court that day, there were no pictures of who these victims were. It was just names on a piece of paper. So I wanted him to know that she wasn't a thing, that she was my sister and that she was loved. So I had that picture that I showed to him. She was a little girl when she was murdered by him. In November 2003, Gary Ridgway was convicted of 48 counts of aggravated murder. He was sentenced to 48 consecutive life terms in prison. When a 49th body was found dumped in Washington in December 2010, Ridgway was given an additional life sentence. They found Becky's body. Her remains were found by accident. That was my sister's best friend. There were so many names, so many victims, and I think it's important that, that we try and remember all of those women. In his final statement and admission of guilt, he said, I wanted to kill as many women I thought were prostitutes as I possibly could. If anyone truly deserves the title of an evil killer, it is unquestionably Gary Ridgway. The Green River Killer murdered 49 young women. They may be gone, but for the loved ones left behind, they will never be forgotten. I can always see her face. She was very fun, very bright, big, beautiful, you know, blonde hair, blue-eyed, angelic little girl. Sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole, 
the Green River Killer will likely end his days incarcerated. Now in his 70s, he remains at the Washington State Penitentiary, mostly in isolation. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. The series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the families and friends of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we'd love it if you left us a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... Gainesville, Florida, 1990. Students Christina Powell and Sonia Larson were preparing to start their freshman year at the University of Florida. They are the very vision of of, of hope and, and happiness and joy for the future. But in less than 24 hours, they would both be dead, brutally murdered by a 36 year old vagrant named Danny Rowling. This is a person who volcanically erupted behaviorally. The hatred, the paranoia, the psychosis just unleashed itself upon the world. Rowling's passion for killing grew. His victims were bound, stabbed, and mutilated. Some had been savagely raped. His capacity for violence and his appetite for violence was um, more than anyone I had ever encountered.